1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
2: And what I'd like to do is read for you our passage, 1 John 5, 1. 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. And I want us to look at the baselines. So, because when you look at your life, when you examine your own heart before God, you need to understand how to look at your life through the lens of Scripture, how to see things as God sees them. And 1 John provides us this insight. I can
0: see the promised land, though there's pain within the plan, there is victory in the end, your love is my battle cry, the answer for all my life, every dragon will fall, the mountains will mend.
1: Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so blessed that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the broadcast. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's edition of Grace to Live, Pastor Keith continues with our series in the book of First John, a series entitled, That You May Know. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the book of First John, Chapter 1. Now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: Father, we thank you for this day. It is a day that you've made, a day that we can rejoice in, a day that we can be still and know that you are God. Every day should be that way, Lord, but today is the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day that Christ rose from the tomb in victory over sin, death, and hell on our account. Help us, therefore, Lord, to make the most of this day. Here in this meeting house is your church And for the rest of the day, too, Lord, may we keep you in the forefront of our minds today and every day, Lord, as we bear witness to you, as we as a church family seek to change this world, our community, one soul at a time with the message of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul Brown and I have struggled here with the fact that we are Dodgers fans and... The Giants are the dominant team here. We were, we've been hoping for some time that the congregation would catch up spiritually in that arena. At the same time, I have to say now, I'm probably neither a Dodgers fan or a Giants fan. I'm a Tampa Bay Rays fan. Uh, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Is... You know, as Christians, and this is why we're in First John, by this you know, by this we know that we're in him, that we are like him, that there are some things that we cannot do as Christians, there's some places that we cannot go. And uh, as Pride Month began in June, and Pride Night for the, for the Major League Baseball, and the Tampa Bay uh, Rays took the field, some of their players caused a bit of a stink because they did not have the... Gay Pride logo on their jerseys, where the Dodgers and the uh, Giants proudly announced they had 100% compliance. The Rays caused some consternation, attracting the ire of the New York Times and even the Huffington Post, uh, because uh, a pitcher explained, I can't wear that emblem because I'm a Christian. Christ has encouraged us to live a lifestyle that we would abstain from that type of behavior, any type of sexual immorality, uh, pitcher Jason Adam said. Uh, The reliever said that this was a faith-based decision. He wasn't trying to cause trouble. But as an influencer, as someone whose job it is, whose reason for being it is to bear witness to Christ, he and some of his teammates understood that by wearing that logo, they would be not necessarily walking in the light, but t- tilting toward the darkness. Yeah, I had a colleague uh, who was a fr- who was a chaplain for the Giants. Actually, he has three uh, three World Series rings, one for each daughter that he has. Um, but I look at that, and I look at the chaplains on those teams, and I look at the chaplains on the Dodgers, and then some of the even coaching staff who made professions of faith in Christ. And one wonders how in the world you could take the field and affirm these things that the Bible teaches so clearly against. Athletes, public figures, uh, are role models. And these Christians realize that. You know, Jesus said in Matthew 18 that stumbling blocks will come, but woe be unto him who is a stumbling block through whom stumbling block comes because it would be better for him or her or them, whatever, that a millstone be tied around their neck and they throw into the depth of the sea. We live in an age where you're going to be able to tell the real deal believer from the nominal Christian because they're going to be, the real believer is going to be willing to take up his cross and follow Jesus wherever that goes. And they're not going to condone things that are unconscionable. Which brings us to the uh, Oak Grove School District. I have an email from them that somebody forwarded to me. I think we have a slide for that. And basically, it talked about kicking off Pride Month and uh, how they would be flying the flag, uh, you know, the LGBTQ flag, and that they would be flying it year-round henceforth, that they would be having progress reports for students and teachers and staff uh, and raise these progress flags uh, to forward, to advance this agenda. And I, I look at that and wonder, you know, because teachers are influencers, right? Teachers are role models. And I pray for the teachers who profess Christ at that school or any teacher anywhere who would display a gay pride flag, an LGBTQ flag, uh, in their classroom. Because the message that you're communicating, that the school district is communicating, you have the United States flag, you have the California flag, you have the LGBTQ flag. How many other flags are we going to fly? Well, apparently just one. And that sends a message. What we tolerate says a lot about our faith. What we condone passively says a lot about our faith. I remember reading an, uh, a quote from a man in uh, Nazi Germany. And he said, When they came for the trade unionists, I did not protest because I was not a trade unionist. When they came for the socialists, I did not protest for I was not a socialist. When they came for the Jews, I did not protest because I was not a Jew. And when they came for me, there was no one left to protest. You know, as believers, we're either in the kingdom... Or maybe not. We, as Jesus said, know a tree by the fruit it bears. And this is the message of 1 John. And you know, it's not just about athletes or teachers. There's an old Bob Dylan song that says, uh, some are mathematicians, some are carpenter's wives, don't know how this all got started, don't know what they've done with their lives. What we do with our lives sends a message. How we bear witness sends a message, whether you're a contractor overbilling on a job, whether you are an employee, a professing Christian employee grumbling against your boss, whether you're a malingerer at work or on your work team, passive-aggressive and just not quite doing what you've been asked to do, whether you're the prototypical or stereotypical loudmouth Christian cynic always pointing out somebody else's sin blind to your own, or whether you're somebody who just disrespects your spouse in front of your children, what we say and do is an indicator, is a baseline indicator of what's going on in our hearts. And so we continue our series on 1 John, By This We Know. 1 John is known for its tests of life. By this we know we are in him or if we say this but do that and what you see in 1 John are a series of tests of life that provide clarity and assurance for the sinner and the saved the church that John is writing to has been beset by false teaching we believe they were Gnostics who believed in a sort of a higher knowledge it wasn't how you live but it's what you knew, you know and uh they were the people with the secret handshakes and the passwords and the code words and the dog whistle words and things like that. And John had to come in there and restore this church that had been traumatized, that had been compromised and polluted by all these crazy notions. And so as he writes to them, he writes to confront those who may be drifting or those who have never known Christ but have played the game, gone through the motions, And he writes to reassure those who are clinging on to their faith. And so he gives these tests of life. Now, last week, we began our studying 1 John 1, 5 through 1 John 2, 2 about the baselines. As we talked about, in medicine, you have baselines. In statistics, you have baselines where these are the starting points for assessing and measuring things. And as John begins his tests of life in 1 John 1, 5 through uh, 2, 2, he starts out with a very simple baseline before he drills down deeper into the heart and mind of the professing and real believer. And so we began talking about baselines last week, and we started a four-point sermon that we only got through two points of. But what I'd like to do today is restart that. And what I'd like to do is read for you our passage, 1 John 5, 1. 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. And I want us to look at the baselines. So, because when you look at your life, when you examine your own heart before God, you need to understand how to look at your life through the lens of Scripture. How to see things as God sees them. And 1 John provides us this insight. It is a call to common sense Christianity. It is a clarion call back to basic Christianity. It is a wake-up call for the nominal Christian, the professing Christian who's really just an unbeliever but has learned to speak the lingo. And it it contains words of comfort and reassurance for the true blue believer, as it were. So let's read 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. This is the message that we heard from him, from Jesus, and proclaimed to you the church, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Here is the character of the God, pure holiness. There's going to be themes of light and darkness throughout 1 John, comparing and contrasting those who are in the body of Christ and those who are outside. And he says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, no corruption. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, and the word walk here has to do with a lifestyle, not the occasional stumbling. If we say we have fellowship, if we have connection, if we have partnership, if we have relationship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But, on the other hand, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. So, as we talked about before, if, if we walk in the light, since he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other because we are related by blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, no matter who we are, where we're from, what, what our ethnicity is. We're from all different places, but we have one thing in common, a familial relationship, a blood relationship with each other, and with Jesus Christ who has cleansed us as believers of all of our sin. Now, he says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We live in a culture today that doesn't believe necessarily in personal sin. There are Christians who, well, professing Christians who don't necessarily believe in personal sin. And if we call this behavior normative, and we say it's not sinful, or we call that behavior a normative when it is sin and say it's not sin, then we are engaging in self-deception and the truth is not in us. On the other hand, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now the word there, confess, is the Greek word homo legao, which means to say the same thing as homo, same, lego, legeo, to speak. And he's saying, you know, if we say we have no sin, if we say this sinful behavior really isn't sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we call sin what God calls sin, particularly as it applies to us, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, it's not talking about the loss and regaining of salvation there. It's talking about this. God never abandons us, but sometimes as believers, we sort of wander off the the right road, and we abandon him. And like the prodigal's father, he's awaiting our return, and that return to him is marked out by, as the prodigal said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. Please take me back, is one of your workmen. And the prodigal son's father said, no, no, you're my son. Come home. And so it's talking about the restoration that takes place when we catch ourselves in sin and turn back to him. Why is that? It's not because we say we have no sin, it's because we see sin as he sees sin. We say the same thing about sin that he does, that it's evil, that it's terrible, and that we are grieved over it, particularly our own sin. He comes back though in verse 10 with a warning, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Boy, you see a continuum there, right? First we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That continuum, you know, from not walking in the light to walking in the darkness, you know, to uh, walking and to denying sin, you see this, this downward spiral. You see indicators that someone may not know Christ. We deceive ourselves, we lie, we call him a liar. This is John, you might say, the son of thunder, telling it like it is. You know, he he and his brother, James, were called sons of thunder because they were pretty brash, pretty straightforward, pretty black and white. That's who's writing this epistle. But John is also called the apostle of love. And you see him turn this corner here on 1 John 2, 1. My little children, there's a term of endearment, a term of of affection I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Now, let me just explain to you. There's nothing wrong with him being the son of thunder, telling it like it is, and there's nothing wrong with him being the apostle of love. It's just two sides of the same coin. He's full of grace and truth, just like Jesus is. All grace without truth is no grace at all, and all truth without grace is no truth at all. It's balanced. And so John confronts and encourages. That's what Jesus did. That's what we're called to do. And so what we see here is him reassuring them. He's turned his eyes and his attention from those hard-hearted people who are playing the game, who, who have claim to be one thing, but are in fact another. And then he turns to the children of God, his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he says, my little children, like a parent almost. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, now let me explain to you what's going on there. First John is not about sinless perfection. First John is not about being sinless. No, nobody has ever been sinless except for Jesus Christ. 1 John is about the sanctified life, the life set apart to God. And as we grow in Christ, we sin less and less, but we never become sinless. So the assumption here is that sooner or later we're going to sin. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin, so that you may avoid sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The word advocate there is parakletos, which is the same word applied to the Holy Spirit as a helper. We have someone on our side, Jesus Christ the righteous. The righteous isn't just some nice description. It's a fact about Jesus. He is uniquely qualified to plead our case because he is sinless. Furthermore, he is a propitiation, the satisfaction for the debt, for the certificate of debt against us because he's paid that debt with his life. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins. He is the satisfaction for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world is the one and only Savior that is. So last time we talked about organizing this talk around four categories, the fact of the faith, the fallacy of the faith, the fellowship of the favored, and the only Savior. We made it through the first two, and we're reviewing right now for those of you who are here for the first time. So let's just review quickly. Let's talk about the fact of the faith. There are some things that are just painfully obvious that are objectively true. Now, I know objectivity and fact and logic are supposed to be irrelevant these days, but it's not the way God works. And so in 1 John 1, 5 through 7, we read this. This is the message we have heard from him, this is what Jesus has proclaimed, and we as his apostles proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Then jumping to verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. It's pretty clear. Those who walk in the light, those who do not trifle with the darkness, who do not turn a blind eye towards sin and corruption, who, do, who take God seriously, we have fellowship with one another because we have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 5.1 talks about being imitators of God as dear children. The bottom line here is that we begin to resemble Papa more and more as we grow in Christ. We talked about last week that saying, oh, that that young man is a spitting image of his his dad. And we understood that spitting image is a corruption of the term or phrase spirit and image. And so as we walk in the light, as we pursue Christ, as we live for Christ, we become more and more like him, no longer conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. And so as disciples of Christ, there is a Family resemblance. We have fellowship, partnership, connection with one another because we are all related by blood and we have fellowship with the Father and we become more and more like Him. Salvation produces inward change which blossoms into outward conduct. And what we see here is the fact of the faith. It's black and white. If you are born again, if you belong to Jesus, if you have turned from sin to Christ, It's going to be obvious. There are certain things you won't do, certain places you can't go, certain things you can't condone. This whole idea about, you know, let's just look the other way. I'm okay, you're okay. Let's not worry about it. Live and let live. Let's just go along to get along. That is not an option for you. That's where we get into be one, bring one, build one. Being one is striving, struggling, however imperfectly to walk in the light not winking at sin not participating at sin not knuckling under when a little persecution might come your way but living for Christ in an obvious way so we go from the fact of the faith if you're saved it shows to the fallacy of the fallen that's what we did last week the fallacy of the fallen deception people who hate God people who don't know God have all kinds of ways to justify their behavior. They deny the existence of sin. They deny that this is a sin or that is a sin. They have the whole thing about live and let live. Why do you care about these things? And they can tolerate almost anything but the gospel.
1: Pastor Keith Crosby